The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Good evening. We're back. We're live on air. This is The Viewpoint indeed with me, Songa Zomabet. And of course, as a nation, we are mourning the loss of our ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark, a person who is known the world over, not because she's a Mandela, but because she's a freedom fighter in her own very right. Condolences then indeed to the family of Mama Zinzi Mandela. May her soul rest in peace. Special thoughts go out to you, Zolega, and the family, your brother Bambata as well. This can't possibly be an easy time. We will give the family their time and space, and I'm sure we will make allowance on the viewpoint during the course of this week to go down the history that Mama Mandela, Jr., of course, has had in her imagination as a freedom fighter in South Africa's history, more especially when we lead to the birthday of the late icon, her father, Madiba, which is the Saturday, the 18th. Incidentally, Tembegila, the son of Madiba, passed away equally on the 13th of July, all those many years ago. Condolences then to the Madiba family. Let's continue the conversation, of course, as we always do and should have a diagnosis of government socioeconomic response to COVID-19. This evening, she's not taking over, but she's a guest in the true sense. Good evening, Tessa Doom, social activist and director of Jasora Consulting. We've had you before. Now you're going to answer real questions. Good evening, Tessa. How are you? Good evening. I'm very well, thanks. Fantastic. Appreciate your time. A diagnosis. We've had, what, 108, 109 days now. The government has tried to tackle covid your perspectives, your thoughts. You're a social activist. You know exactly what it is that is going on because this is an effectively a social compact that South Africa is dealing with more than anything else. What is concerning to you? What are you proud about? Give us a diagnosis in terms of how socioeconomically South Africa is faring in its fight against COVID-19. Well, I think one of the things that we need to um, acknowledge about the COVID-19 response is that in many ways, the health response has been um, the focus and has been um, has been faster, has been funded, um, has had more thought um, put, put into it and a lot of communication. But I think on, um, on the social front, we were a bit late um, out the gates when it came to our response. I think the moment um, government first even conceived of a lockdown, it would have had sight of our socioeconomic issues, poverty, inequality, unemployment, and known that um, any lockdown from day one would have a harsh impact on many South Africans, and particularly very marginal South Africans um, living in in poor living conditions. And I think um, the fact that we are only really in month three or four of this crisis response, starting to really address um, things like the social grants, um, making sure that we actually have food parcel systems that work, um, I think that our social response in terms of our machinery was not ready for this crisis, which makes me concerned that we don't have a so- Department of Social Development um, that is really at the heart and the pulse of our country's um, socioeconomic challenges. I'll come back to you on that statement in relation to the Department of Social Development because it sounds like a very serious indictment on it, and mm-hmm. we have to honour that remark you have made. But there has been something which really struck me as I was going through my reading and 
that South Africans initially were very happy with government's response, albeit it might be argued they were a bit late out of the starting blocks in terms of blocking international air travel. But to the extent that the lockdown was announced, first the soft lockdown, then the hard 21-day lockdown, the extension thereof, South Africans generally were receptive to the fact that decisions were being taken, not necessarily popular, not necessarily convenient, but certainly decisions were taken in response to COVID-19. But I think the reality of institutional failures the reality of a discoordinated, fragmented government then took over. For instance, when you messaging, the regulations, how many times they have been to court about this, how to know that the taxis will be available at 70% capacity and then 100%, and then the ministers meeting and not meeting them. SASA is post social in 10 people the concerns of the years are now, as it were, like chickens coming home to roost on the government, for we have been shown that a lot needs to be done by this government, and unfortunately their capacity is not there. How fair a comment is that? I think it's a very fair comment. I think we've had um, service delivery crisis over, in the country over many decades now. We, we're approaching three decades of um, just basic service delivery. Um, I mean, one of the big things about COVID that we don't speak about enough is that um, the response needs to encourage social distancing in a country where many people live in overcrowded, dense, informal settlements. And so that is not something that um, you can just quickly say to people, oh, now that we are in lockdown, I'm sorry that you haven't received the basic services and sorry that our housing program hasn't been rolled out, but please comply, comply to our regu- regulations. Um, I mean, we saw the, the attempts at rolling out water and sanitation when um, for so many years so many communities have been without water, and that is a serious indictment um, on the state. And then if you take that one step further, just a question, and I think this was a, a, a point that we didn't um, hear enough about. But at local government level, there are disaster management offices that should be functional and that should have indigent registers that are able to say, these are the people in our communities who do not have employment, who do not have um, good housing, who do not have access to um, economic opportunities. And the fact that government was not able to, um, at a local government level, have those responses in place, have that um, disaster management in place, have those indigent registers on call so that they can reach out to the most vulnerable people immediately is is really an indictment that we need the whole government to to create account for because it should not take a deadly virus and a crisis of this proportion to get the basics right. If the basics were in place, we would be able to absorb this difficulty with much greater ease. Of course, uh, Professor Tulima Donsela, who is at Stellenbosch as and as the chair of the social justice chair there, I mean, she has written to government suggesting that government has not responded at all well to this. And she has seriously taken the regulations on saying that the regulations are running parallel to the act. Some of the structures and institutions that the Act makes provision for is very different to the reality and the concentration of the powers onto the president or the command council. I suppose this then does lend itself to what you are now lamenting as a fragmentation of approach. What are your thoughts on that? The fact that the relations themselves are readily available and constantly communicated from top down. 
Yeah, I think the communication of the regulations hasn't been the big crisis. Um, but I do think in the crafting of the regulations from the beginning, there's always been a disconnect between what the regulations um, say and how they're impacted on or affected in various parts of the country. And so the regulations, especially if you think about those very first ones, um, if you considered them in a middle-class suburban con- 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 context, they were much easier to implement than in other parts of the country with different um, geospatial realities. And I think we, we, we have regulations and we have a state that is trying to use a blanket approach to a country that is very diverse, to a country that has so many different geospatial inequalities, geospatial conditions, um, socioeconomic differences. We are the most unequal country in the world. And yet we are treated as if we are all the same and we all have the same access to things and we have all the same kinds of conditions in order to apply these regulations to our lives. But I think that the, the underlying issue for, for many people is that if you think about um, what government is communicating, they're communicating the regulations, but they've communicated very little about the actual virus itself. And so we're being told in this country what to do, but we're not being told much about why to do it. And people don't understand COVID-19 very well, and so they just feel like they're being imposed on and if you're living in a small town in South Africa, you've never met anyone who's COVID positive. You don't really understand the virus. You don't really understand why you're wearing a mask or, or what the hand washing is about. It makes those regulations even more difficult to comply with over and above your poor social economic status. We're going to take some calls from you as we are in conversation with Ms. Tessa Dooms, social activist and director of Jasora Consulting. She's no stranger to the show. She's part of the family. So please do give us a call on 0891104207. After the break, we take your calls. If you're not comfortable giving us a call and there's no reason why you shouldn't, we will please take a voice note on 0614104107. Your thoughts are important to us. A diagnosis of government social economic response to COVID-19. Conversation with Ms. Tessa Dooms after this break. Call Songhez or now 0891-104-207. We continue then the conversation with Ms. Tessa Dooms, who is a young person who has held position in her previous life as a co-host of Viewpoint. Now she's a guest. Of course, Tessa Dooms is a social activist and director of Desora Consulting. The conversation this evening is a diagnosis of government social economic response to COVID-19. Earlier on, Tessa, as we continue with the conversation, while we try and get some callers and WhatsApp voice notes to come through, you mentioned that social development is just about near non-existent, at least I'm paraphrasing what you have said. What did you mean by that before I engage you on that? Yeah, I think um, at the beginning of the crisis, um, the the very least that we expected from the Department of Social Development was to have a plan around the grant system. And we saw that there weren't really very clear plans around the grant system um, and how to um, dispense it. And I think that at that point we realized also that the department really only saw that as its its task, its only task. Um, And this was a crisis that was affecting Mm. things like early childhood development, for example, 
and we had no response from from the government around how it would cope with early childhood development disruptions. And even today, we're still having the department swaying left and right around something like ECD. Um, the other issue was food parcels. And we saw civil society come in almost with, with, um, with speed to try and fill gaps in terms of food parcel distribution um, that was uncoordinated and the Department of Social Development had no mechanisms in place to support the distribution of food parcels um, and to support the ways in which um, those NGOs would get their access to their permits. So we had a big crisis around that. But ultimately, the biggest question would be, does the Department of Social Development understand the, the community that it serves in this country in terms of the most marginal people in our mm. society? Does it have contact with those people? We saw how, um, even when they were putting forward the criteria for who would receive the 350 rand COVID grant, it seemed so dislocated from the realities of most South Africans to ask people to provide um, a proof of, of, of registration of um, residence and a bank account and all sorts of things in, a, in an instant. When so many people are indigent, are truly in, in, in a position where those things are hard to come by. And so, I mean, today we heard an announcement um, by the minister saying that they're seriously considering a basic, a universal basic income um, grant. And you would expect that this department would have ha started having these kinds of conversations around a widespread response to poverty, to unemployment, to inequality many, many, many years ago. And so it just gave me the sense that either the political will has not been there or the infrastructure in that department in terms of the bureaucracy is dysfunctional. Outside the political world, because, I mean, we're going to get into nuanced conversations about personalities who've held the position, let's just focus on the reality, which is readily available or not, and that's the existence of infrastructure. You mentioned the fact that South Africa is a grossly unequal society. In fact, the reality is the Gini coefficient is close to 0.7. Now, that's the most unequal society in this world indeed, and that is true. Nobody can argue that. So, the infrastructure question, I think I might even say, it doesn't exist. At least from a policy perspective, it might. But in reality, the lived experience of many South Africans is that this infrastructure doesn't. What then, in the true sense, do we have when we have a disparate position between policy and reality dealing with the COVID? Do we then, as South Africans, truly understand what at this point can only be characterized as a failure? Not so much of this administration, but of administrations preceding it, such that when you have a diagnosis, as we are trying to have, you are lamenting what you are. So in other words, do South Africans then appreciate the depth of the institutional failures time over because when you talk about the infrastructure, it doesn't exist. Hence, they're asking questions and things of people that do not exist because they clearly are so at odds with the reality of the constituency. I don't think that there are South Africans who don't understand the depth of the crisis um, in terms of government's ability to deliver in the country because um, we love the consequences of those choices and of those failures. And the question is, does the state understand the depth of its crisis? Does it understand its failures? Does it understand its inadequacies? When we talk about a, a capable state, and that, that phrase has become um, a sing-song that we hear in many speeches, but when we speak about a capable state, 
um, is it really about just adding more people into the system? Is it really just about looking at the qualifications of who you put into, in, into um, positions of power? I think it goes far beyond that. It really has to be a question, number one, of whether or not you have leadership. Leadership that can put in place the right kinds of vision and that can really push people towards um, implementing the things that they say they will do. And then accountability. Leadership leads to accountability. And I think that there's so little accountability within our state system that people get, um, you know, very comfortable because you won't be held accountable if you don't deliver. And that accountability, unfortunately, also um, has us implicated as citizens. Because between the five years that we vote, we have to start asking ourselves hard questions about whether we are actively engaging the state often enough and calling for that accountability. And if that accountability doesn't come from our leaders, will we be the ones to issue that accountability at the polls every five years? Speaking about accountability, the vulnerability of children in this era is probably more pronounced than any other time in this democratic dispensation, if not ever in South Africa. When you talk about the absence of the infrastructure that is there, and as a result of that, you create an already vulnerable group of persons, children, women, because we've seen the rise, among other things, gender-based violence, and of course the elderly because of the irregular distribution of social cover that is otherwise a constitutional right. How do we begin to hold government to account? I'm not talking about the vote per se. How, in my ordinary exchanges, do I begin to hold government to account? What should I, as a citizen, in a community, local, provincial, even national community, do we hold government to account? What is missing that is the mandate of government that we have as citizens the power to ask for? So I think the first thing that we need to do better at is know the public officials and know um, who to hold accountable for which failures. So um, at local government level, do we know who our ward councillors are? Do we know who our public representatives are? Do we know who are our mayoral councils? Do we know what the channels are to engage them, um, especially when you're doing it with, uh, outside of a political party? So I think knowing um, who to hold accountable for what. I think often what we do in the country is when we lament, we ask for, you know, let's, we want to see the minister, we want to see the president. But um, housing failure in terms of delivery, may not be sitting with the minister. It may actually be sitting with provincial government. And so knowing the system and, and yes. having better specific education around the system and who's in charge of which things, that's important. The second thing is participating and understanding budgets. Um, we have a very short-sighted view of budgets. We listen to the budget speech. Um, but we don't understand the mechanics of those budgets. We don't understand how they are dispensed. One of the big things that we need to challenge in our system, for example, is that um, government departments are put under pressure to spend money in their budgets so that the following year they don't get a budget cut. But they're not actually being told, um, if you do not spend in the right ways on the right things, you will get cut. And so we need to be the ones who say, Have you, yes, you spent your budget, but what did you spend it on? Where are the results of those, of, of those spendings? And we need to ask for accountability, not just on whether the money was spent, but whether the results were found. And then I think the final thing that we can do 
with with almost you know clarity and certainty is ask around our electoral system, especially with the national picture in mind. How do we start to engage directly with our parliamentarians and those elected into parliament to represent us? We don't really know that, um, or often people don't know, that every parliamentarian is assigned a constituency in this country. So know who that person is, contact them, get, in, get, um, get an understanding of how parliament works, do the representations as communities, lobby together on the issues that matter to you, and do representations to your parliamentarians and to national government. I think we need to understand the system better so that we can start to play a role in the ways decisions are made and bear on those public officials so that they know that we're watching them. Absolutely fair point. Fantastic contributions then. Thank you so much. We're going to ask after the break one more question. I do want to probe this question a bit more, the relationship between the community and the councillor or the public rep. This is something one of our regular listeners, Mike in Newlands, will always punch for. It does merit even a conversation for a minute on the other side of this break. Tessa Booms, please stay on the line. We'll return very shortly. Stay on top of all meaningful, top-trending stories right here on SAFM. Leading the conversation. Yeah, we are back. Good evening, folks. And I understand from the producers that there is a bit of a challenge with the connectivity. I beg your pardon for that. It must owe itself either to the wind or the conditions outside. It really is difficult. I beg your pardon for that. We are trying our level best to continue providing the kind of quality that, at least in recent time, we have been known for. To the extent that it does persist, from me to you and the team behind me, a thousand apologies. Tessa Dooms, you're finishing up now. Let's talk. The very important of a relationship between the community and their public official, because this is how accountability is best ensured. Final comments as we talk about COVID-19 and the socio-economic conditions that pertain on the ground as overall response by government. Yeah, I think the one thing that COVID-19 has certainly taught me is that um, there is power in the refrain that you vote for people who you can trust with your lives. And we have seen that we need to have public officials that we believe have our best interests at heart and will do the right thing to save our lives and our livelihoods. And I think, um, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened during this time as well, as we've had this um, constitutional judgment that has declared the Electoral Act um, invalid in term and unconstitutional in terms of independent candidacy. And this gives us an opportunity in our country to rethink voting and rethink elections. And the way in which um, I think we can best do that is to say, how do we start to vote for people who we know, know us, know our communities, know our issues, and are willing to do something about it, even when they don't have power? How do we give power to people who we know? When we, saw, we know so many people in this country who are community activists, who are people who are in our communities doing things, uh, many of them as volunteers, many of them without um, getting any compensation. How do we start to make government officials and, and public representatives of the people who we know, the people who are in our communities, the people who know our struggles? Because it's only in those um, kinds of people that we can really have the confidence that when we speak, they will listen. Right now, we have way too many public officials who are not only um, aloof in the sense that, you know, you see them only on TV.
even at the, the most basic level, the ward level, the municipality, we just don't have any confidence that the people who represent us actually know the struggles um, of people and the, in the communities that they love. And I think that's an opportunity that we have in this time to really rethink our voting so that we vote for people who we really believe we can trust our lives with. Well, let's leave it there. I think you've said a lot, and I can only summarize it in the words of Reverend Mpilo D. Tutu, who once said, and it's true now as it has ever been, the price for freedom, dear friends, is eternal vigilance. And I think in as much as there may be government failures, it has to be said there are constituency failures in insisting on what is duly that of society because our public representatives are sleeping on the job. We are equally sleeping on the job by not holding them to account. Tessa Dooms, thank you then so much for your time. We certainly do appreciate it.